Morning, everyone. Morning. How's everybody doing on this beautiful summer day? Isn't this fantastic? Yeah. Um, if you remember from last week, we left on a really bummer of a note because of Abimelech's hatred of his father, um, Gideon. And, of course, the fact that he murdered 70 of his brothers didn't help anything. But um, Abimelech is sort of on that path to utter destruction. And I think it is hard sometimes as Christians, as believers, when we look at the world around us and we see the wicked prospering. And that's not a brand new problem. That's not a brand new thought that we've had because Scripture constantly talks about the wicked prospering and how difficult it is for the believer, the one who holds near and dear to God, to be satisfied with simply God and not worry about how the rest of the world is living, what benefits they may have, what stuff they may have, what ease of life it may appear that they have. And in fact, it has been a problem lifelong for the believer when they evaluate the wicked in light of themselves. And they feel that they are somehow lacking and they can become envious of what the unbeliever has. And in Psalm 73, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read a real couple quick verses here and get the mindset of what Jotham might have been feeling. Remember, Jotham was the one son of Gideon that had escaped and hid himself and then made that beautiful declaration of prophecy to Shechem and Abimelech both that God was going to judge you and put a spirit between the two of you and you would eat each other alive. Even though now it seems like you've got great peace and prosperity, a day of reckoning is going to come. Wickedness does have a price tag associated with it, and it's called justice, not karma. And in Psalm 73, not a psalm written by David, but by Asaph, he says the following, and I'm just going to select a couple verses here. And so if you're trying to read at verse 1, I'm skipping several verses here just to give us the thought of it. Otherwise, I would be in this chapter the entire day and not even get to the book of Judges. But we're starting here just first couple verses like verse 3. The psalmist is saying, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They set their mouths against the heaven. Their tongue struts through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, always increasing in riches. And then the psalmist switches mindset. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, I seemed to be wearisome. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terror. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. When my flesh and my heart may fail, God is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far away from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your wondrous works. Now the psalmist says that the mind switch happened. This looking and envying at what the world might have, the fact they've got an extra day for the weekend all to themselves, they don't have to go to church on a Sunday, and they get to do whatever they want the entire weekend, and we make those sacrifices and we gather together to those things of sacrificing our time and money and service and energy. We look at the world and say, they've got, they've got it so much easier. They don't even carry a, care about God's law and rules and regulations and obedience. They just live it any way they want to, and they seem to get, they seem to get away with it all the time. The psalmist said there was a switch that happened, though. I don't know if you noticed it. It says, when I thought about understanding all this, it seemed wearisome to me, too much for me to bear. Then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and I discerned their end. There is a connectiveness when God's people come to God's sanctuary and says, I surrender. I surrender before the Most High. I take all of those thoughts that I had about how it might be unfair, and I surrender them to you. Jotham had to have been going crazy. His family was murdered. And the murderer was put in charge of the largest city in the area, Shechem. And the people of Shechem were just, just overwhelmed with how awesome Abimelech was and how cool he was and how a warrior he was and, and how, what a great leader he was. And they were showering him with gifts and power and, and respect. Jotham had to be at the top of the hill after he proclaimed that prophecy probably wondering that same thing. Why does Abimelech get away with this? Why does he have it so easy? Why does he have the renowned? It should have been my dad. It should have been Gideon. Or it should have been one of his legitimate sons that took this place of authority and power. But no, the son of one of my dad's concubines paid everybody off, and now he's in charge. How unfair unjust, unheard he might have felt, that God maybe wasn't even listening to him anymore, that God maybe even abandoned him. So let's pick up the rest of the story in Judges chapter 9 and see how Abimelech fared in that city of Shechem in the northern part of Israel. And we see in the very first few verses, just the first few in verse 22 through 25, the setting of the stage of Abimelech's ruin. By God's hand. Verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And, he, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. So God sent disunity, disharmony between these two people. Between Abimelech and all the leaders of Shechem. God insisted that there would be division there. And he brought about division. How he did that, what it looked like, I don't know. But there is no honor among thieves. If they're both thieves, they're going to hurt each other. If they're both liars, they're going to lie to each other. If they're both wicked, they're going to be wicked towards each other. They may have a moment of peace and a moment of doing something together, but in the end, their nature and their character will show fruit, and it will cause division and disharmony, not harmony. The wicked destroy themselves. But God sends an evil spirit between them, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. 
that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech and their brother, Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So all of a sudden there is this thought in that city of Shechem among the people and the leaders. We, we may have done something a little bit unorthodox three years ago when we put Abimelech in power. We killed, murdered, not out of war, not of self-protection, but we went out and murdered Gideon's sons when Gideon had done nothing but bring peace and protection, safety and security, removing the Midianites far from them, destroying them. This is how we repaid them. You can see a little bit of a guilty heart starting to well up within the people of Shechem about what they had done and the blood on their hands. Verse 25, and the leaders of Shechem then put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told of Abimelech. So the leaders of Shechem said, you know what, how we're going to start to whittle away Abimelech's power and authority and respect within the people? Is we're going to hire people to do more wickedness. That'll get them. That'll teach them. We're going to put thieves and robbers along all the paths that come into town. And anytime someone is robbed or beaten or, or, or hurt in any way, Abimelech's going to be, get the blame because he's the leader after all. And the leader always gets the blame. And so they're kind of building up their um, goodwill among the people by making the people suffer through robbing, murdering, and, and attacking them throughout the mountaintops and on the way. Verse 26, it can't get any worse for them. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, first time we hear the mention of this guy's name in Scripture, he seems to be someone just far from the east side of what would be modern-day Afghanistan, Pakistan, far east. So no relationship with Israelites, no relationship with the Midianites or the Canaanites. He's kind of a new guy in town. And so he comes into town, Gaul, the son of Ebed, he moved into Shechem with his relatives. So he brings in a whole group of people. And that's generally how people moved in the Middle East at that time. They moved in family units. It wasn't just a son or a daughter that got up and left. It was kind of the whole family unit would make a move together. And why they made the move there to Shechem, who knows, but I think ultimately it was God wanting to cause this division even greater among Abimelech and the people of Shechem. So this guy named Gaul, uh, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. They liked him. He must have been a very likable guy. So much so that in verse 27, they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. The picture is... This new guy comes into town, no relationship, no relative at all in the entire area, and everyone likes him. They like him so much that they say, you know what? It's harvest time. Let's go out and get some grapes. Let's make wine. Let's have a festival, and let's badmouth Abimelech. And so they're having this big party, this festival, and they are just ripping Abimelech apart. They're complaining about who knows what, his leadership, his lack of leadership, his looks, 
Maybe he spoke funny. Maybe he looked funny. He definitely murdered 70 people. So maybe they're talking about all that stuff. And they're just going back and forth about how mean Abimelech is. Three years previous, Abimelech was their savior. And he won them to their side. How? How did he win the, the entire city of Shechem to their side? Hey, we're relatives. We're family. Oh, and here's some bribe money. Well, here's this guy who comes way out of town saying, hey, who is this Abimelech guy? Tell me more about what he's done. Oh, that is, oh, I would never do that to you. I would never let that happen. I would, and probably gives all these grandiose political promises about how life would be better under his rule. So this party is going on. Everyone is just making fun of Abimelech and criticizing him in the moment of this party, drinking, and uh, revelry. And then in verse 28, Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Wow. Do you catch that? Let me read that again. Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Gaul, you are slick. Because all of a sudden you've inserted yourself, we. Why should we serve him? I mean, we're the people of uh, Shechem. Well, I mean, it's, it's our city, it's our town, it's our people. Why should we suffer at his hand? He's wicked towards us. Gaul, you weren't even there three years ago. Gaul, you are not of Shechem. You just moved there with your relatives, but now I understand the political at play. He identifies with the people of Shechem and says, we are under siege. We are being mistreated. We are suffering the consequences of Abimelech's actions. We, 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 we. And so he's complaining and self-identifying with them. And then he says, is he not the son of Jerubal, which is Gideon? And is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? So he basically says, hey, isn't he really still the son of Gideon? Shouldn't we be serving the son of the king of Shechem and honor him? Again, Gaul, you're not even from there. You don't want to honor the people of Shechem. You certainly don't want to honor Gideon's lineage. I understand why you don't want to honor Abimelech. He's a murderer and a liar and a deceiver, and you want his power. I get it. But he inserts himself into this family feud and does nothing but divide and divide and divide, which is exactly what God was looking for. He was looking for that division and put the people in place to make that division actionable. And so the following, verse 29, puts it into action. Gaul says, Would that this people be under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech, and I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. If you would only follow me, I would put the challenge out there to Abimelech. You put up or shut up. Gaul has some gall, but it moves forward because all is not fair in love and war. It says in verse 30, then Zubel, the leader of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, 
and his anger was kindled. Well, yeah, because you are attacking your commander, Abimelech. You're attacking the guy who you have paid homage to, that you've gone to war to or war with. He's your leader. And you hear your leader being attacked and defamed and ridiculed and dismissed. And now there's a plot against his life brewing and the entire city is at edge. And so he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Behold, Gaul the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem and they are stirring up the city against you. Absolutely true. Now therefore... Go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Zubel sets up this great game plan. First of all, he lets Abimelech know what's happening in the city. The city is on edge, and they're starting to hate you. The tides have turned. You no longer have the people on your side. This new guy came into town and just stirred things up, and the people were willing to go along with him, maybe out of guilt, maybe out of shame of what they allowed you to do three years earlier, but we got a plan. In the dead of night, bring all your people down from the mountains into the valley next to the city, and as soon as daylight appears, pop up out of the fields and attack. They won't be ready for it. Surprise. So, the day is here. Verse 34. Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set ambush against Shechem in four companies. So Abimelech just simply divides his people into four groups kind of surrounding the city. The city is on sort of a plateau, but there's mountains surrounding it and a valley surrounding it and a river running by it. Uh, So there's various um, landscapes and battlefield opportunities, but one major road runs through the entire city and along the trade routes. And so all four companies of Abimelech's men are just hiding out. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up at night. Verse 35, And Gaul, the son of Abed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. So all of a sudden, Gaul, for whatever reason, decides to go out to the main city gate and stand there in the early morning, and all of a sudden, this ambush out of nowhere happens. And this is how it happens. And when Gaul saw all the people, he said to Zabel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zubal, remember, Abimelech's commander-in-chief, his army guy, said to him, "Uh, you're mistaken. Uh, That's the shadow of the mountains. They're not men. Okay. Uh, So Gaul said again, "Um, look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And Zubal said to him, where is your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people who you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaul went down out of the head, uh, went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled before him and many fell wounded 
up to the entrance of the gate, and Abimelech lived in Haram, and Zubel, or, uh, Zubel drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. There's a sense in which you got to appreciate um, spies being spies and deceivers being deceived because the moment Gaul said, I think there's stuff moving out there, the head of the city said, nope, I think you're mistaking all that movement for trees and shadows. They're not men. Just be at ease. So Gaul for a moment probably thought, okay, maybe I don't know the area. Maybe those are just shadows and I'm not getting it. Maybe the wind's blowing over there. No, I definitely see people. They're coming right out of the grass in front of us. And before he had a chance to make a decision, he was attacked and did the best he could, taking everybody out of the city because you don't want the enemy in the city because once they're in the city, they control everything. So the fight goes out of the city and Abimelech utterly defeats them. Now, it doesn't tell us that he captured Gaul or killed him, but we don't hear anything more from him after this. But we do know that Zabel just simply said to all of his relatives, you're out of the city, you're gone, you're done with. You would think at that moment, someone who is wise, although Abimelech has no sense of wisdom, that someone who is wise would say, okay, we're done. Let's just stop here. We had victory. The people of Shechem need time to kind of think about what they did, but no reason for me to do anything else because I showed my strength. I won the day, let's all go home, let's think about this and have some diplomacy for the next move. That's what wisdom would do. Let's think about this. But Abimelech is not a wise person. He says in verse 42, the rest of the story, on the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the field and he took and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt." a sign of absolute destruction. He went into that city and killed everything that had life. And just to, <laughs> no pun intended, throw salt on the wound, he decides, I'm going to lay this land barren. All the fields, all the vineyards, all the places where things could grow, he scattered it with salt so that the land could no longer produce, which meant Shechem became a ghost town. No one would ever live there again because they couldn't sustain themselves. Burned it to the ground and destroyed it for future generations. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 46. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of el Berith, which... Try to think for yourself for a moment of medieval castles. Now, they didn't have that in this day, but they would have had outlining villages that sort of were the, the city gatekeepers. But then there would be some major structures in the middle of the city that gave all the important and rich people 
a place for protection if there was a little band of robbers going through because the band of robbers would just kind of take on the little villages and little houses and businesses, but they would leave the strong tower, that big building, all alone because why waste your time on that? It's going to be hard to penetrate, going to be very difficult to defeat them once they are held up in a fortress, whether it be made of wood or stone or a combination of. So all of the leaders went into this little tower that was in the middle of the city and verse 20, 47, Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to the mountain of Salam, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulders. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put it up against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. I thought Abimelech was bad for killing 70 of his brothers. He's just wiped out the entire city of Shechem and burned 1,000 people alive. He is as wicked as it can get. No regard for life, no regard for wisdom. He's a wicked, wicked man. And so far, nothing has been able to stop him. Not even a foreigner and all his relatives and the whole city of Shechem, the whole city couldn't stop him. Now he's completely laid waste to it. But in the end, God wins. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to the Bez, encamped against the Bez, and captured it, which is another city outside of Shechem. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and the women and all the leaders of the city fled into it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Flat. But Abimelech still has a little bit of life in him. He then calls quickly to the young men, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, Abimelech was killed by a woman. I think being killed by anybody is bad, but in his mind, in his day and age, to lose to a woman was like worse than death. Now, Abimelech has no clue how bad death is going to be for him, but he knows if this happens, everyone will be singing songs about Abimelech was killed by a woman. Remember, Abimelech was killed by a woman. Who knows? I mean, it would have been humiliating for poor Abimelech for centuries and millennia. We would have been making fun of him even to this day. Ah, Abimelech, he was killed by a woman. No, he couldn't let that happen. So his young armor bearer decided to thrust him with the sword, and he did. Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him, and his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, 
everyone departed to his home. A moment of normalcy. A moment of huge sigh of relief. Let's go back to our lives. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. You cannot mock God in thinking that wickedness will go unpaid for. Three years, Abimelech probably lived in a lot of safety and security and opulence and excitement about how he is now ruler of Shechem. And in a matter of days, a foreigner, complete foreigner, comes in. Division is made. God uses the hand of that foreigner. God uses that bickering among each other. They use that deception and lies and fussing and complaining to build enmity between Abimelech and his once kingdom that he ruled. And before you know it, a young man had to kill him with his own sword to save him embarrassment. A matter of days how the mighty has fallen. A matter of days how God has brought judgment upon the wicked. And Jotham at the very end, while I'm sure he didn't stand up and have a parade and celebration, I'm sure there was a huge smile on his face. God repaid evil for evil. Jotham didn't have to do it. God brought it. God brought it every step of the way. In Psalm 75, verse 7, it says, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting another. God is the one who will take care of the wicked. God is the one who will judge them. We don't have to judge them. We don't have to complain about them, and we don't have to judge them. God is perfectly capable of taking on the wicked, even though the world may be reveling in their goodness from their perspective. God takes care of the wicked. Our call is to run to the household of God and say, Lord, judge them. Judge them quickly that we might be able to go back to our cities and enjoy the comforts of our relationship with him, with you, with God. It's a beautiful passage, and we're going to close in this if the band wants to come up, all two members of the band today. In the book of Revelation, John witnesses real, utter destruction of wickedness. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them, which means everything was utterly open to God's presence. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what they had done. Then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
I don't read that to make you scared of the lake of fire. I read that to encourage you and give you hope that your name is written in the book of life if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. If you believe that one simple truth and surrender your pride, your hate, your arrogance, your wickedness, if you surrender it to Jesus Christ, your name is solidly written in that book as if it was written in stone, never to be erased, but to be upheld and cherished by God. But if your name is not written in that book of life, you may not be as wicked as Abimelech. You may not be as wicked as the men of Shechem. But don't be fooled for one second that God will not bring justice for his namesake. That there is incredible peace and incredible joy that he offers us at the same time. That if you feel your life has had these wicked moments, you can surrender them. And just as far as the east is from the west, God will remove your sins. And he will take all those crimson stains of sin and make it white as snow. That is the promise he makes for you this day. Because he has not guaranteed you the next one.